184. Page 184. So the re we, we print all the, I mentioned this last week, we print all the services in the bulletin to make it user-friendly. Um, so we have to look at the hymnal during the new member class to justify the existence of the hymnals in the pew. <laughs> no, uh, if you'll notice at the top of page 184, it says divine service. So as a reminder, it's, it's divine, that is, it's God who's serving us. But you see underneath that it says setting three. This is kind of confusing. What? So if you've grown up in Lutheranism, uh, depending on when you kind of popped in, even in the ELCA, they have a, a common hymnal. The, there was like one main divine service going all the way back to the early centuries, actually. The, the basic liturgy of invocation, confession, reading, sermon, sacrament, out the door you go with the benediction, same thing. Thank you, Aurelios. <laughs> um, so then uh, as we move into like, uh, fast forward many, many years, get into America, you have the, the, the Germans, the Lutherans are worshiping the same liturgy, the same common liturgy actually the, the, the Catholics are using. Uh, all of really Christendom is generally following the same liturgical rite until about Vatican II, uh, which is in the mid-1960s. Anyway, so this is, this is kind of a funny story. The Germans come over on, in Saxony. Uh, the Saxon Lutherans come up the Mississippi River. They settle south of uh, St. Louis in around 1840s. And um, so you've got this growing German Lutheran contingent in the heart of America, hence Missouri Synod, which is our affiliation. It's because our, our headquarters is there in Missouri. Well, as you get into the 20th century, start thinking of there's some pretty significant wars that were taking place in the early 20th century that had um, Germany as the primary culprit, right? So if you're a German church in America and you're speaking German, you're like, you're a suspect in your character and in your church. And so um, but what they did is they translated the, the German liturgy like very coldly into English. But if you grew up in the TLH, so that might mean nothing to many of you, but the old, the old, um, the, the first English hymnal, it's extremely annoying. Like hymns will be like on a page turn. So you're singing like, you're singing like half the hymn and then you turn the page and finish the hymn and then turn back and start the next stanza and then turn like, what? And then the liturgies were the same way. Like the today I'm like, I remember the, like, the, the hymn that goes, we praise you, O God, we, we praise you, O God, we acknowledge you to be the Lord. Like, it's on a page turn. So it'd be like, we praise you, O God, we acknowledge you to be the Lord. And yeah, I flip back. All the earth now worships you, the Father, Son, everlasting. What? What do we do? It's the most unuser-friendly hymnal ever. And then in the 19... Uh, 70s, approximately, there was an effort, a joint Lutheran effort, um, I think late 1970s, to create a one hymnal, what, one, one ring to rule them all, one hymnal to unite all the Lutherans in America. And um, even though we're very different, what became the ELCA, the most liberal thing that they were doing back in the 70s was ordaining women. Um, to, in order to ordain women, you have to have a pretty loosey-goosey stance on the Bible, which ultimately leads to the overt, crazy liberal stuff we see today. But back then, generally, society didn't have all these liberal tendencies, so it wasn't as bad yet. Anyway, so we're all trying to put together one hymnal, 
And then uh, because the old English one, like think the old TLH one is so clunky and not user-friendly. We're trying to grow the church. You invite your friend to church and they feel like you're walking into the 1800s with a hymnal of tiny print that's really hard to use. And the liturgy is already kind of complicated as it is. So we wanted to try to demystify and make relevant the liturgy. So they, 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 they started this joint Lutheran hymnal. Right before they get to publication, the, uh, the Missouri Synod sticklers said, wait a second, there's a lot of gender-neutral language in some of these confessions of God. This is problematic because the way that we worship informs the way that we believe, and the way that we believe informs the way we worship. There's a Latin saying for this, lex orandi, lex credendi. So the, the way that we worship in this regular, repeated fashion, week in and week out, like even if you don't go to Bible study and you don't like study the word in any other place, the way that you understand and comprehend God is informed very heavily by your worship experience. What you say about God in the hymns, what you pray about God in the, in the prayers. And, um, and we're mindful of that. Like when we, when we build the prayers on Sunday morning, we're always careful to, we try to specifically pray for things like the institution of marriage between a man and a woman, uh, to specifically pray about life in the womb, because we're not touching on abortion and, and gender issues from the pulpit, unless it's, unless it's called for in the text. But we, we are mindful that we are, we're informing people's general understanding of, of the faith with everything that's happening in the liturgy. So um, anyway, so we, we jumped out of that hymnal project in the 1970s, and then very rapidly they threw together a, 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 like an ad hoc hymnal that became the in, the, in the old ELCA, it was green. It, it was the green, if you're familiar with, if you ever saw the green hymnal, but the, the, the Missouri Synod version was the Lutheran worship, the royal blue one. So if you grew up in the 80s, that was the hymnal, and most people hated it. The hymns were, they, it was arranged by like one guy who, wrote, who arranged most of the music. Music was terrible. It killed harmonization in the church. Um, it, it, there's a lot of like, in, intentional efforts to contemporize the music, which unfortunately things are only contemporary like as they're happening. So if I write a hymn that's going to be contemporary and put it in a hymnal and bind it, it just, it, by the time it comes to print, it's already outdated. So when you got hymns and, and arrangements of music that are tied to the 80s and 70s, all of a sudden in the 90s already, it's like, what are we singing this nonsense for? The only residue from that hymnal that most people are familiar with is the hymn, This is the Feast. This is the Feast. Like, that's one of the components. So anyway, right after that hymnal was published, churches rejected it outright. A lot of guys put it in garbage bags and mailed it back to CPH. Um, like, it was crazy. So right away, the, 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 the synod started putting together this baby, which came out in 2006. They spent over 20 years on this hymnal. And the year that it was published happened to be, the, the year that it was put out was my first year at seminary. And the guy who was the mastermind behind the project, since he was no longer with a job because the hymnal was produced, he went to seminary to be a professor. And so I got to have the guy teaching me how to use this thing. So it's pretty interesting history there. But the, there are five different divine services, that is orders of worship. And all that really changes is the way the music is arranged. Um, the order is always the same, but mostly it's just musicality differences, trying to unite the, 
what, the, what you have before you on page 184, that, this is the old, the old liturgy, the oldest one that we use. That's been updated and slightly modified, but it's mostly the most commonly known liturgy. Um, and then Divine Service 1 and 2 are that old uh, blue hymnal. The one we're, that's actually what we're using now in church is Divine Service 1. And then uh, Divine Service 4 and 5, um, we kind of shy away from because some of the musical arrangements are weird and four. Five is actually Luther's, like all the, all the songs in the liturgy, like the Gloria, the Sanctus, all these, the Agnus Dei, they're actually replaced by Luther's hymns. Luther's hymns aren't always that easy to sing. If you know it, it's, it becomes a fun service. But most people don't know it, and so it becomes a very non-fun service. So uh, we typically do services one through three. Anyway, that's a, more than I wanted to say on that. Uh, so as we began with the Lord's name on page 184, having been called together in his presence, he's, he's put his name upon us, his presence is with us. He draws us to, to himself, and then we confess to him our sins. So we look on the bottom of 184 in the left column, for example, I, a poor, miserable sinner. So right off the bat, we come to church not to pump us up and to artificially like, um, be naive or ignore our reality of sin, but right away we're confessing the problem that we have, the reason why we're here, that I'm a sinner. I confess my sins and iniquities with which I've offended God. Most of my sins offend my neighbor, but I'm confessing my sin against God. And because of that, I, I deserve temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily, that is from the heart, not hardly, like I'm not really sorry. <laughs> I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And we'll talk about repentance here in a moment. And I pray you for your boundless mercy, for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. So we've confessed our, our sinfulness and um, both the sins that we do, but the sinners that we are. I am by nature sinful and unclean. I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I've done and by what I've left undone. That's a confession in divine service one that we're, that we're saying currently. And then the pastor comes in with, conf with the absolution. Upon this, your confession, I, not because I'm so super duper special or pious or wonderful, not because I've been given some great power like Harry Potter or something, but because of my office. That is, the Lord has instituted the office of the holy ministry so that his forgiveness would be proclaimed with certainty on earth. And so, so that's why the pastor doesn't just say, Jesus forgives your sins, but the pastor says, I forgive your sins, because it's the Lord who instituted the office to speak on his behalf. Uh, as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God to all of you, and in the stead, it is because Jesus isn't standing here right now, he actually put me to speak on his behalf, and by his command, I forgive you all your sins, all your sins, all your sins, in the Lord's name, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we're off and running. So that's the piece we'll look at. Um, and, I, and I think by the end of today, I may hopefully get to the creed. But right now, we're like six, today's we're, we're like more than halfway through the class and we've only made it to page one of the service. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll cover a lot of ground pretty quick. On your, on your handout there, you've got a, um, a plagiarized, it's not plagiarized, copyright infringed piece of artwork in front of you. 
But he's a Lutheran guy and a friend of mine, so I don't think he cares. He's not suing him anytime soon. His name's Edward Riojas. He's the one who did the artwork on the back, uh, the, the resurrection scene in the back of the church. He's the one who did that picture I showed you like around week two of Jesus on the cross. So he's masterful modern artist um, of, of kind of demonstrating these biblical themes. So what you have before you is a scene from the, the prodigal son. And as we're talking about confession and absolution today and repentance, we're kind of, we, want to, we want to approach this with the understanding that we have a God who, whose, whose children have wandered off and he wants them home. That's the basic idea. And really, that's the, that's the summary of the Bible. We have a God who seeks the lost and he wants them home. He wants to show them mercy and he seeks them when they're lost and brings them back. So if you, if you flip over to Luke 15, your Bible, the other maroon book in your, in your pew in front of you, my goal is to have you have as many open books on your lap as possible. Luke chapter 15. Page 874, if you're on the same Bible as everyone else. We get the three, the, the, the Jesus' famous three parables of lost things. So first, the lost sheep. So the Pharisees are grumbling in verse 2 that the, the Jesus is receiving sinners and eating with sinners. Who does that? Why would you associate with sinners? Well, because we have a God who seeks the lost and brings himself to them when they wander off. So he gives the parable of the shepherd who, who finds the sheep when it wanders off. And when a sheep is lost, it's like, it didn't necessarily, it wasn't trying to get lost. This, we learn a lot about our sin in these parables. The, the sheep was, what was the sheep, consider this, what, was, what do you think a sheep was tr chasing after when it got lost? Better food. Did it think that it was gonna be sitting duck for the, for the wolves? Was that like on its radar? No. So it was, it was seeking better food to the, uh, in contrast to what the shepherd was trying to say, okay, Lord, I'm trying to bring all of you sheep over here to where the water is and where the food is, and I'm going to keep you safe. And this, this one sheep says, no, I don't believe you. There's better food over here. And is that not the same temptation of Eve, uh, toward Eve of the devil in the Garden of Eden? And the same temptation the devil continues to bring toward us now is that there's, God is holding out on you. There's something better over here. And as soon as we go chasing after it, we find ourselves alone and afraid. And when the sheep, when the sheep is lost, the sheep doesn't find itself. The sheep doesn't even, is it the sheep ba? Do you, call, do you say ba? Is there a word for the ba? Bleat, that's the word. It just, it goes, it, goes, it goes numb in fear and panic. So it'll be like in the bushes, hiding and quiet. And so the shepherd comes along and has to find it and they have to pick it up because it won't walk back on its own. It's like my 15-year-old miniature dachshund when I say, all right, let's go outside. She just stops and looks at me. And I have to like, try to kick her in the backside. So she takes one foot and I kick her again. It's easier to just pick her up, put her outside. And that's what the Lord does. So this is the picture, is that in our sin, we've wandered off 
toward what we thought was going to be good for us, and we get trapped in it, and he comes and finds us. This is what's happening in the gift of repentance. And then it says at the verse 7, uh, verse 6, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over a sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So he's after repentance. But notice, repentance here is nothing that the sheep can take credit for itself. This is a huge misteaching among Christians today. Think of the guy standing outside of like Cubs Stadium wearing the giant poster on his chest that says, uh, repent or go to hell. Now that's a clear message of John the Baptist to be sure. It's a clear preaching of the law. But I don't decide to repent. Because then I can stand up here and say, tell you, you're saved by grace through faith. There's nothing you can do. But you have to repent. That's the one thing that you got to do. Wait a second. I saw, when Jesus said it is finished, what he meant to say was it is finished as long as you repent. See? So how, how, think of your own experience, how easily we we turn repentance. In our understanding, we turn repentance into some kind of a work. And then we judge other people for their seeming lack of repentance. If they would just turn their life around, then they could be saved. No, I just made salvation a work for them. But I don't want it to be a work for me? That's inconsistent. So we look to the words of Jesus. When he gives a picture of repentance, it's a sheep who definitely is responsible for its own wandering off. But it's not responsible for its being found. So repentance is being found. And then that's just if you thought, well, but the sheep did wander off on its own. Uh, Jesus makes an even cooler point in the second parable, the lost coin. The lady just loses a coin. How much, how much responsibility did the coin have for being lost here? Was the, was the coin looking after better pastures of green or better water? The coin did nothing. We have an inanimate object that is simply lost. And that gets at in the sense that the lost sheep we are, we're guilty for our own wandering, but our, our lost coinness is showing, is a reminder that we're born. As Lady Gaga would say, I was born that way. <laughs> we're born in our sin. And, and yet, what does he do? He gets down on his knees and he goes into the dark with his light, finding, trying to find us. And then just so, there's joy in heaven rejoicing with the angels and the saints rejoicing over a sinner who repents. So repentance in the Greek is a word for turning. Now, the way the evangelicals, and I know this because I grew up in Baptistville in Mississippi, repentance is you're, you're doing sin, and then to repent would be to turn away from doing sin and what? Stop doing sin. And if you start doing sin again, then you're not repenting. So it, it's an on-off switch of sinning and not sinning, sinning and not sinning. Well, think about it. If that's what repentance means, then if I achieve repentance and I no longer sin, then I no longer need who? Jesus. So if Jesus is saying repent, and that means don't sin anymore, Jesus is saying repent so I don't have to die for you. That's not the point. So repenting is turning. It's turning from our false gods and this life of sin, and it's being turned because the sheep doesn't find itself. 
The coin doesn't find itself, but it's the Lord comes to me with his word and he crushes me and says, this is not gonna save you. This is not provided, this God isn't even real. And he gives me the gift of the gospel that then turns me back to not a life of sinlessness, but a life that's no longer faced up against a false God, but faced up toward a true and living God. And that God is standing there not with a belt to spank me, but he holds out his hands and they have been pierced with the nails to hug me, to forgive me, to love me, right? So the, so the turning in repentance is, first of all, we talk about repentance as a gift, not a work. So the gift, we pray for the gift of repentance for those who, are, who have wandered off in sin and gotten lost in the bushes. We pray for the gift of repentance for those whose heart is hardened in their sinfulness or who don't believe or whatever. We pray for repentance. And, and we, don't, we don't bring about repentance by just saying repent, but, but by actually preaching the word of God, of, of extolling who the Lord is and why this, why this sinful behavior, for example, is, is not good for you. We've talked about in the Ten Commandments, we talked about how our sin is not an arbitrary list of rules that God just randomly made up so that we can make him happy, but our sin is actually bad for us. And it's bad for everyone. No one is happy in their sin. Even total unbelievers, and they're wrapped up in sin, are not happy. There's a despair and a longing there, a void that's trying to be filled. So the Lord gives us the gift of repentance. And then we get this beautiful picture, the climax of Luke 15, the, the prodigal son, or really it should be the story of, some would argue it should be called, because the headings were not in the Greek. This is not Jesus said, and here's the heading of my next teaching. Uh, these are like summaries of the, of the editors, but it could be called the, the, the parable of the two sons or the parable of the merciful father. So there's a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to, your father, to, to his father, drop dead. That's what, you, that's what you're saying when you want their income or the, what the will has. He divided his property between them. He actually does it. He gives them what he wants. And then the young, younger son gathered all he had and takes a journey to a far country, squanders everything in reckless living. Notice it doesn't say what he was doing. It just says it was reckless living. When he had finally spent everything and a f severe famine arose, he found himself at the bottom of the barrel eating pig food, which is unclean. So anybody hearing this parable would have, there's shame all over the place. Shame toward dad, shame toward leaving his family, shame toward this life of giving, of losing all of his, squandering all of his possessions and mostly shame toward eating, working with pigs and then eating their food. And then he comes to himself and says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Notice he doesn't go back because his dad is merciful. He goes back because he's hungry. It's still about him. So we gotta be careful here that we don't say, well, the prodigal son, that guy's responsible for his own repentance. No, it's still about the father's mercy. I will arise and go to my father and I'll strike a bargain. Dad, I sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Are you buttered up enough to treat me like one of the guys who's eating better than me right now? So I'll make, this, I'll be, I'll make a bargain with you. I'm coming before God with some sort of a deal to make. And he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off. So you pause here, and here's the picture on your, on your handout there. You see the, the kind of this, the life of debauchery and, and, and lostness on the left side. You get death there, obviously, with the, 
um, with, the, with the skull, but we have Jesus who's dying, overseeing all this sin. So it's really great in the, in the background there of Jesus dying for the lost. So then at his, when he gets at the very end, he starts coming home and you see the Holy Spirit there floating over his shoulder. So we know, we know the Holy Spirit's involved in this return. Um, but this father on the right side, he, you picture him every day when he, when he sits down on his beautiful deck in the morning having his coffee, he scans the horizon every morning, hoping and praying for the day that his son's going to come back. And finally, this day, he sees him, and he just takes off running. And this, is, this would have been a shameful thing in this culture for a, for a man of stature to run, but he, he has to, like, pull up his skirt and run. And while he was still a long way off, the father saw him, had compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. So you picture him, like, just tackling him to the ground, hugging and kissing. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he could get to the bargain-making part, and before he could even ask to be asked, uh, to, to be treated like a servant, sons never stop being sons, right? Even bad sons are still sons. You don't fire sons. You can't shake your genes, Right? So before he, it, was, it, would have, it would have been a silly thing for him to even offer. So before he even get there, the father says, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, totally restores him, sacrifice the calf and kill it. There's Jesus, the sacrifice. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive. So the story of being lost and found, dead, alive, that's repentance. But it's all about the mercy of the father, lavished on the on the son. And then the older son, here we, we get some instruction too regarding the animosity in his heart, acting like he was entitled to have more. He was entitled to have all this and didn't get it, kind of um, shirking the Lord's generosity and kindness. And the father, the father gives him a bit of law as well. You've always, been, you've always been with me. I would have done anything for you. So here's this, this other son having animosity against his brother, even speaking evil about him when he says, um, this son of yours, not my brother, but this son of yours, devoured your property with prostitutes. Well, he doesn't even know he's back. He has no idea what he's been doing. He has no idea. But he's just making these accusations. So our, our animosity against our neighbor leads us to say evil things. And you kill the fattened calf for him? And he says, son. So this, he cuts through the mess. You are my son. You're always with me. You're always my son. All that is mine is yours already. So today it's fitting to be, to be glad and rejoice because again, death to life has happened. Your brother was dead and now he's alive. He's lost and found. That's repentance. So on your hand out there, the gift of repentance is a life of recognizing my sin when it comes and giving it to Jesus. He finds me when I'm lost and brings me home. Repentance is not the one thing I still have to do. Otherwise, salvation wouldn't be a gift. And that's, this, so this, the, li- the Christian's life is a life of repentance. In fact, that's the number one of Luther's 95 theses, most of which are actually still Roman Catholic. Luther is still like starting to come to an understanding of the gospel. But he says, I believe it's when, when the Lord Jesus called for repent, said that the life of the Christian, or when the Lord Jesus said to repent, 
He meant that the life of the Christian would be one of ongoing repentance. So repentance isn't like the one, one, I repent now, it's the one thing I do, but rather repentance is the rhythm, the ongoing rhythm of the Christian life. And that's why we do confession and absolution from the font. I've been baptized, the Lord's name is upon me, the old sinful flesh is drowned, sins are forgiven, new man is awakened. And then I sin again. And so I drown the old Adam, new man is awakened. Then I sin again. He drowns the old Adam, awakens a new man. So this is the rhythm. So the life of repentance is, is, is seen most clearly and vividly here, where the Lord continues the work of baptism in speaking his forgiveness to us. So uh, in brief summary there in the bottom of two. Yes, ma'am. So, you're, so like you pointed out, the Baptist would not. There's no rhythm Well, so, I mean, I, to, to go uh, just briefly to speak on the Baptist mindset is baptism doesn't actually do anything anyway. So baptism is just an outward show of an inward decision. Because that's, that that's ultimately why they're not Lutheran. They believe the Bible is God's word. The Baptists are major allies for us. But they deny the sacraments because they don't, they don't believe God works through these things. And ultimately... Their sin, remember we did the picture last week of the dead tree. For them, they're not dead trees. The fruit is bad, the tree's not dead though. So therefore, since my tree isn't fully dead, I can still choose good or evil. I'm a free agent in this. And the pastor is a car dealer trying to sell me on car A or car B. So think about how that changes church, by the way. If you are a free agent and you're coming to church and, and I'm just trying to get you to choose to be better, then I'm, I'm trying to persuade you. I'm trying to manipulate your emotions toward a decision, whether it's a decision for Jesus or a decision to clean yourself up. But either way, it's a decision that you're making as a fully functioning tree. Versus here, we come in and say, hey, I'm a dead tree. I can't save myself. And, the, and the, it's, the, it's Ezekiel to the Valley of Dry Bones. Um, but then the life of the Baptist is a, when I... When I do sin, because remember, repentance is actually turning away from sin and sinning no more. When I sin again, I've actually shown evidence that I didn't mean it when I repented. So it's a downward spiral. And I actually used this example a couple days ago at our 20-something Bible study, um, because we were talking about some of the differences. And on the one hand, we could say, um, it doesn't matter. Uh, we're saved by faith in Christ alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But there are differences that we want to make sure that we're clear about on this side of heaven because ultimately we recognize in history that one's confession of who Jesus is, for example, can be so wrong that we add works to Jesus, like we critique with the Catholics. I've add, if I've added works to Jesus, then Jesus isn't saving, do, doing all the saving. So now I'm wondering, have I been good enough? Have I done enough? If, my, if it's ultimately about me making a decision, I can say, did I really, was I sincere? Like, here's the classic, here's my high school experience. Every week we go to chapel and they bring some like ex-con to come and now he's like a youth pastor at some church and he would give his spiel about how he got into drugs and 
women and alcohol and all this downward spiral. He finally got arrested and in prison he was converted and now he's like hardcore awesome Christian. So there's this, I was a really bad dude and now I'm, and now I'm, I've got it together. I've kind of made it, I made a decision. I chose to follow Jesus. I repented and now I'm, now I'm following Jesus. But here's the thing. If a person falls into sin again, returns to that life, when, when the person who had given up alcohol and the AA guy is on his two-year mark and he falls off the wagon, then all of a sudden he says, wait a second, I, I must have not really meant it. When I, when I hit rock bottom and I accepted Jesus into my heart, I didn't mean it because if I really meant it, I wouldn't have fallen off the wagon again. So I, must, I need to accept Jesus again or rededicate my life to Christ is the language we often see. And, and since I didn't mean it the first time I accepted Jesus, my first baptism didn't count. Because remember, baptism isn't God doing something. Baptism is me showing God something. So I didn't mean it last time. So I need to be baptized again. Hence, Anabaptist, and summarized with Baptist, but that's the, that's the early Reformation history on that. Good. So I've got here at the bottom of, one, the, the very basic summary of confession absolution. In his law, Jesus says, you're a sinner. And we say, amen, yes, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. In his gospel, Jesus says, I already have. Here it is again, you are forgiven and free. And we say, amen, yes. And he says, to those who, who's, who, who are free, go have fun. And we say, let's go. And, that's, and we're often running in the worship and we're often running in our lives. So it's a, it's a life of freedom and joy as those who have been forgiven. Um, a quick note on, on um, like the picture of the confession there on the front. So can, private confession and absolution was, was popularized in the Roman Catholic tradition by what you see in the movies with the guy in the box and the, and the priest with a little sliding door and somebody confessing their sins and the priest saying like 10 Hail Marys, that whole thing. Um, and... and <clears throat> Confession was required of you before you could go to the sacrament and had to be sincere and yada, yada. So at the time of the Reformation, Luther pointed out that we can't, we, you can't necessitate, you can't require all these sins to be forgiven because now we're turning confession into a, into a work. Like I can't be sure that I'm going to heaven until I've, I've enumerated all of my um, sins. So then, unfortunately, in that Anabaptist tradition, the, the enthusiasts, one of the, one of the fanatic um, um, sectarian groups that splintered off after the Reformation, they, were throwing out, they threw out baptism, they threw out confession, they threw out the sacraments. Um, and in, in, in American Lutheran tradition, and really in 20th, 19th and 20th century Lutheran tradition, all of private confession absolution was gone private confession and absolution. Because people would say, what's the rationale? Why do we throw things, why do we throw out anything in the Lutheran church? Because it's Catholic. But why did you throw it out? Because the Catholics do it. Well, that's not a reason. There's good things that they do too. And it's like, just because they had it, yeah, they have, there's good things. So just because the Catholics do it doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. Just because it was abused just because you can make your car go 150 miles an hour in a school zone, it doesn't mean you shouldn't drive a car, right? It should be used properly. So private confession absolution is actually the initial intended purpose. 
That is, well, to, to put it quickly, like, you're doing it anyway. People, people, whenever you do something bad, you want to tell someone. This is great. It's, it's, it's proven to be true. Every hair, back when I had hair, I'd go to the hair person, like, people want to talk about what they've done wrong in life. Your friend calls you up. The bartender hears all these stories. People want to talk about what they've done wrong because what they're looking for is what? They're looking for justification. Very perfect word. <clears throat> they're looking for someone to tell them what? You, you should have said that. You did the right thing because he deserved it. She deserved it. Um, you should have, yes, you're justified in having the affair because he didn't love you. He should have gotten off his rump and stopped watching TV so much or whatever the thing is. Like to say you did, it's okay, you did the right thing. Uh, the Lord gives justification, not by saying it's okay, but by saying, no, that's wrong, but I'm taking it from you. You see the difference? So rather than self-justification, justi- we are justified, that is we are declared righteous, not because someone says, I'm, ru- I'm making a ruling here that you did the right thing. And deep down, you know that you didn't. The Lord says, not that you did the right thing, but you are righteous because I've taken your sins from you. Uh, in any case, people want to get their sin off their chest. And the Lord knows this. So he gives the office of the ministry for hearing sins and speaking forgiveness. And so like the, the pastor, like for me, when I hear confession, I, I, I try to leave the sins in the office. That is... We actually have it. You can't see it. If you ever go to communion on this far right side, what I do at least, I'll come in here, I flip a chair sideways and I get a hymnal and a person kneels down at the end. There's a crucifix behind that wall actually. And uh, so that person can, if there's a particular sin, and, and this is the, the beauty of private confession, is you, it'll be a particular sin that plagues someone. Like something in, whether it's an actual thing that they've done or, or something from their past, or just like this sense of animosity toward God because he let some terrible thing happen, or just like, I need to talk to somebody about this. Sin, sin is somehow involved. And the pastor can actually, there's, there's a, there's, it's pastoral counseling that occurs. So the pastor puts forgiveness, direct, puts Neosporin directly on the cut. <laughs> uh, so the forgiveness is given specifically to that sin. That sin is forgiven. And we're going to now we can talk about how to deal with it. So there's a little bit more pastoral care that goes on as well. How to deal with this particular temptation next time it arises and so forth. Um, but it's one-on-one. Because what can't happen from the font when we do, pro- it's called corporate confession absolution, is individual conversation. Is I can't, I can't help you. And, and, and it's, you lose accountability. So when you've told someone you're struggling with something and you're wanting to do better, like you're trying to actually do better. But when you kind of bottle it up and it's just between me and God and no one else knows, <clears throat> it's, uh, you, you tend to more quickly return to that, like, like the scriptures say, like a dog returns to its vomit. But still counts. C- corporate confession absolution is still very, very good and very, very, it's what Jesus, he wants his forgiveness declared. It's just when you say, I confess all my sins, it certainly, it covers everything. But it's like, it's one thing for me to say, I love all my kids, or for me to scoop up one of them and say, I love you. See, there's a difference. They're both true, and they're both very helpful. 
but it's a it's more of a specific deliverance for the purpose of comforting the soul not to bring guilt so we're not trying to guilt anyone into it so i always like to make sure to remind people that it is available when the devil comes a knocking and bringing his guilt and shame and uh, despair this is for that purpose jesus wants to take your sins away for your sin is not good for you. At Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The picture is a tree that is dead versus a tree that is living and flourishing. The leaves wither and dry and blow away, that's the life of sin. Or the tree that flourishes is the life of rejoicing the Lord's gifts. So our, our sin isn't good for us because it will make us wither and shrivel up and blow away. Jesus takes, your, takes away your sins, nailing them to the cross, covering your shame and removing your guilt. Jesus takes away your sin, and the only way they hurt you is if you take them back. You are forgiven and free. And, and yet we so often take our sins back and insist on holding on to the cinder block in the deep end of the pool. Let it go, right? No, the cinder block's gonna help me. No, it's not. You know, so the Lord comes along, drop the cinder block, right? But did God really say to do confession? So this is, uh, if we can look at our catechism, flipping your, whichever one you got in front of you, the Bible or the hymnal, they're, they're in both. The catechism is in the, um, the back, or this, the middle of the hymnal, page 326 of the hymnal. It's in the very back of the Bible, but you get the catechism's teaching on confession, how Christians should be taught to confess. Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, so acknowledging that they're there. And second, that we receive absolution that is forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself. That's what it means for the pastor to be in his stead. Not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven. What sins should we confess? Everything. Before God, we plead guilty of everything as we do in the Lord's Prayer, but before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. That is, we're not, we're not being regulate, we're not being told to enumerate every single thing, but it's particularly what is, what is bothering you. What is it? Get cut to the heart of the thing that's keeping up at night, and let's put some medicine on that. Which are these? Which are the sins that I feel? Well, consider your life according to the Ten Commandments. And here's a list. All the different vocations that you're in. Have you done? And these are just examples. Luther's just like giving some examples. Have you done any of this stuff? Now, then what is the office of the keys? The office of the keys is the special authority that Christ gave to his church on earth to forgive sins of repentant sinners but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentance. So, so to be unrepentant is to say, this false God here is better. I'm gonna keep going this way. Uh, it's different, uh, unrepentance is not person keeping, who keeps sinning, because all of us keep sinning. So an, a repentant person is a person who is saying, I keep sinning, the Lord keeps forgiving me and I'm trying to do better. I'm, uh, this is not good for me and I, I'm, drawn, I'm drawn back, I wander back and he turns me back. And I draw back, but that's the rhythm. Um, so unrepentance is really this denial that my sin exists. 
And here's the institution. This is what St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 21, or uh, chapter 20 of John. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And this is, so Easter morning, Jesus, or Easter evening, sorry, Jesus walks into the locked room. Since he's in his resurrected state, he just doesn't even knock. He just walks through the doors. He shows up and he says, peace be with you. Then he shows him his hands and his side so that he's saying, not just you guys get along, but he's saying, peace, look, I've won. I've won reconciliation between you and God. There's nothing that anybody out, you guys are hiding in here because you're afraid of the Jews out there. You're afraid of, you're afraid of the future. You're afraid of the war in Israel. You're afraid of the stock market. You're afraid of cancer. You're afraid of loneliness. You're, whatever you're is, I took care of it. It's all right. It's going to be okay. Peace be with you. Then he says, go give this same peace to everybody else. He breathes on them and sends them out to forgive sins. That that peace that he won on the cross would be echoed throughout the world in the ears and the eardrums of, of everyone. So that's the institution of confession and absolution. When someone says, well, a, 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 a man can't forgive sins. Well, you're right. It's an office. But Jesus said, Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Not because, again, not because the pastor is somehow powerful, but it's all about certainty. Jesus forgave sins. That's where it's won, and he wants it proclaimed. So he's working through the voice box of the pastor, which is why we dress like we do. I'm a sinner, all black, but I'm given to speak something that's pure, the gospel, right? That's why when, I'm, when I feel like being naughty, I take my collar off at least. Uh, let's see. I think I've covered the, those next three points. So any questions on, on confession and absolution? Nothing lingering there? Well then, um, when it comes to creeds, so just to kind of walk through the service up to the point of creeds, the, um, we have confession and absolution here. And then we have what's called the introit, which is Latin for entrance. And it's, it's basically, it serves two purposes. One, if you'll notice the Psalms, outside of when they're sung in the service, which is all great Psalms, like Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart, O God, we sing after the sermon. We don't really get into the Psalms all that much. They're not in the readings. So the introit gives us a glimpse of some of the Psalms that, that are matched to the theme of the day. That's the first purpose. The second purpose is we have to walk from here up there and might as well have play something in the background. It's, mo- it's moving music. So uh, we might as well have it be productive and sing God's word. So we come up uh, and this is where we, what we teach the acolytes actually for your own, um, your own edification. I'm blocking this whole thing. We teach the acolytes, like we, when they come out to light the candles, God didn't institute any of this stuff. This is all symbolic. But we tell the acolytes, so when you come out, we bow and we, then we light the candles. And then we light the altar candles first and we put them out last because what's going on the altar is the most important thing in the room. God is there. The tr- God is bodily present on the altar. That's the throne. So, but, he's, but the, 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 we kind of like, symbolize the presence of God by lighting the candles. So the, so the acolytes will notice they'll, they'll bow on the front end 
And once they light the candles, then they kneel because we kneel before the king. And if the more stuff we give the kids to do, the, the, more, they're, the more they take it seriously. So we just make up rules as we go. <laughs> uh, but that's kind of why we do that. And the pastors follow the same rhythm. So one, now that we've confessed our sins, we enter into the Holy of Holies, so to speak. We get into God's presence and we continue with um, prayer. We, have the, we praise um, glory to God in the highest and peace to his people. We, the Kyrie, uh, Lord have mercy upon us. Christ have mercy upon us. Lord have mercy upon us. The, 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 the Kyrie prayer is, Kyrie simply, Kyrios is Lord. Um, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, is, the, is from the Greek. But the, the picture is, remember the, the blind guys on the side of the road calling out for Jesus? It's a beautiful picture. Jesus, so remember he's blind, so he can't see very well. <laughs> but he's, but the, his, his hearing is astute because your, your senses, your other senses take over. So, he, so he's heard, he's on the roadside, and he's heard all these people walking by talking about this miracle man who's healing people. And he thinks, man, I'd like to meet that guy. He solved my problems. Then he hears one day a guy is walking by and says, hey, Jesus is coming. What? This is my chance, but I can't see. Then he hears a crowd, and there's a distant crowd. It's getting louder and louder and louder and louder and louder. They're here. He's got to be here somewhere. Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Jesus. And it's a sad picture. The, the whole crowd then, it, was, it grew from soft to loud to then soft again. And he knows they're gone. And he's screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And the picture, Jesus just, boom. And the whole crowd's like, what? what's going on? And he turns around and he comes back. Oh, so moving. So we join our, our lips to that blind man. Lord, have mercy. All this stuff is going on in my life. The challenges that I'm facing, the despair, the unbelief at times, the sin, the guilt, the brokenness, uh, have mercy. And he stops in his tracks and he comes back to us. Beautiful stuff. Then we join our lips to the, to the angels. Uh, glory to God on high and on earth peace toward men. That's the Christmas Eve narrative. That's the Gloria we sing. And then there's a prayer, the salutation, the Lord be with you. And then we get into the readings. We talked about the liturgy, the, the reading, the, the rhythm of the readings are trying to cover the, the wisdom of God generally in the course of one year. And then we hit it from three different gospel perspectives over the course of three years. So we have, a, it's called a lectionary, and it's a three-year cycle. And uh, all the hymns are matched to those readings. So then uh, usually uh, before the creed or immediately after the creed, depending on the liturgy, we will say the, sorry, depending on the liturgy, we'll say the creed either right before or after the sermon. And the reason is the sermon gets it wrong because it's written by me. So it's not all, like we, we strive to be great and sometimes, you know, maybe I miss the point. That's okay because the Bible is the inerrant word of God and the Holy Spirit works there. The pastor is trying to, to take that, that gospel and apply it to my people this, in this context, in this community, with the things that we face, the challenges that are unique to us, not a lot of farming analogies in my sermons because my people aren't farmers. I got a lot of parents. So I, 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 gotta, I gotta speak to parents. Uh, I gotta speak to those with aging parents. I'm mindful, you have to be mindful of your context, but then also my time. 
Like this is the 21st century, so I'm talking about social media. I'm not talking about the Gutenberg press in my sermons, right? So it's the, we take the, we contemporize, is that the word? <laughs> Modern, or the, we apply into today's context, contextualize the, the readings. But just in case I got it wrong, we, we, we cover it up. We, we, uh, we paint over it with the creed confess who God is. So I'm just going to introduce creeds here for the next couple seconds. Not, not the Apollo Creed. It's a joke from the 80s. I think I got I'm not, I'm not sure if he's dead yet or not. But, so creeds. And then we'll get into the specifics of the creed next week. But um, creed simply means, creed comes from Latin uh, credo, C-R-E-D-O, which means simply, I believe. So even if you were to say, I don't believe in creeds. I believe that we should have deeds and not creeds. You'll hear that often. I don't believe we should have words. I believe in works. Well, if you say, I don't believe in creeds. I believe in deeds. Well, you've given me a creed. So everyone has a creed. Even if you say, I believe that there is no God. That's your creed. So what the, creeds, what the Christian creeds do is it unites us behind one common confession of what it, what it means to believe in God. So to, to call yourself a Christian, at a minimum, this is what we believe. You don't have to believe it. But when you don't, you need to understand you've severed yourself from the historic Christian church. Classic example would be Mormons, which is known as Arianism from the first or second, third centuries. They didn't believe in the deity of Jesus in the same way that we do. We confess God as Jesus as true God and true man, fully God, fully man. And salvation is at stake here. And if you don't believe that about Jesus, that's fine, but you're not a Christian anymore. You can call yourself a Christian, but we don't recognize it, which is exactly the Mormons today. It's the same confession. A everybody has a creed. A creed is a, this common confession. And the creeds are often and always formed in opposition to a error. Because you could just say, well, we don't need a creed. We have the Bible. Well, two things. Have you ever been on an elevator and someone asks you, what's a Christian? And you say, well, here, read the whole Bible before we hit the first floor. No, but you can give them the creed. You can kind of say, I believe that God created us, that Jesus uh, redeemed us from our sin, and then the Holy Spirit continues to dwell with his church. So God is three in one, and how God is with us and saves us, right? Um, but the specifics within the creed are formed in reaction to something that was being taught in contrast to the existing church claiming to be the church. Does that make sense? So as the, the first century was, Christians believe that, well, this is actually in Galatia. This was exact happening in, in Galatia that Paul was reacting against. If you want to be saved, you have to keep the law and believe in Jesus. And Paul's like, no, that's not Christianity. That's adding... If you add alcohol to oduls, it becomes something else. Is that reference lost in all of you? If you add caffeine to decaf, it's no longer decaf. If you add works to Jesus, it's no longer salvation. Uh, so we want to be clear about what the, what the gospel is. And so the creeds were fashioned in reaction to those things. And we've got typically three of them. Re recently, we added the Sparkle Creed. <laughs> so the Apostles' Creed is typically said 
if you, for, for at, at a baptism. So we use the Apostles' Creed here. And then the Nicene Creed is, um, is a little bit more nuanced and more specific regarding the teaching of the Holy Spirit and, and the, especially the deity of Jesus. And um, then the Athanasian Creed is spoken once a year. Yes, ma'am. I don't, I'm, by the way, I'm just kidding. The Sparkle Creed is not what we actually believe. I'm just, I threw that in here to see if, if, if anybody would laugh. Yeah, great question. So this is actually the, um, the, the gift that was given to you and to all of us. So you, very often you have a conversation with somebody and you walk away. Have you ever had this where you walk away and say, man, I should have said, right? Well, so you want to grab that moment and reflect upon that conversation and go back and have it again in your mind. And then it, that, that sends you digging into the scriptures and into specifically the topic that, that you are weak on. And that helps you, that kind of drives you into being a better apologist or confessor of the faith the next time that opportunity arises. So I, I've done it myself, like engaging with atheists and, and of various different stripes. You just, you jump, what do you have to lose? What are you gonna do, not believe in God? So you jump in and you try to, your best and then they ask, maybe I've got some good responses. But you can't, and this will be your, to answer your question concisely, you can't help somebody unless you know what the problem is. Do they not believe in God because they're super duper believing in evolution? Well, then I need to give them like evolutionary data that, 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 that shows the possibility of God creating a universe fully intact. Like for example, Adam and Eve were created with the signs of age. They weren't, he didn't like create feti, is that the plural? Fetuses, he didn't create them as, as babies, but as fully grown, ready to reproduce adults, just as he created a universe, a universe that shows the signs of aging. So, but I don't need to make that argument, the counter-evolutionary argument, if the reason why they're an atheist is because their, their niece has leukemia, and if there was a God, he wouldn't let her have leukemia. Now I'm thinking, okay, um, I need to make a, make a response as to why how, how a loving God could allow suffering and how God actually works through suffering, specifically the cross, to bring about salvation. If I don't know what the problem is, I can't bring the answer, so you just ask questions. Number one, all of you, the best way to engage in conversation with a non-believer is to ask questions. When you ask questions, you, you are in control of the conversation and you can keep digging. So you say, so when you say that there's no God, what do you mean by that? Because do you mean like you don't believe in like uh, the Hindu gods, like multi-headed crazy things. I don't believe that either. You, you're saying you don't believe in a God that's like in a concrete statue that we can put on our altar at home. I don't believe in that kind of God either. So what kind of God don't you believe in? Then, so, so typically Christians believe in this kind of God. Why don't you, I'm just curious, why don't you believe in God? Oh, because I don't believe a, a, a loving God would allow suffering. Well, why would you believe that? Why, why do you think that? So what, what do you believe and why do you believe that? How did you arrive at that conclusion? Is the way you can, 
you can keep digging. And very often, that's all you have to do to expose that they haven't thought about this at all. And it sends them thinking, I guess I, get, I, guess I haven't really thought about why I just assume that a loving God wouldn't allow suffering. I get how did you reach that conclusion? Well, because in the Bible, it says that God is loving. Well, the Bible also talks about how God allowed Job to suffer. So you, if you're going to cling to the love of God from the scriptures, you got to buy the whole Bible. Uh, but, so I'm, but you can't, you don't know anything until you're asking questions. And as you're, the more you talk to a person with questions, the more you're actually showing that you care. And you're building a relationship. And that's where you get more more productive conversations down the road. So that's, I didn't give you a specific answer to what to say to that person because I don't, I don't even know why they don't believe in God. Today, there's lots of reasons why, and I'm finding increasingly the case that people just don't care. We don't, we don't, frankly, uh, our, our mortality is not in our face enough. When, when, when uh, Pakistan or Palestinians are, are dropping bombs on your kids' schools, all of a sudden you start thinking about where am I going to go when, when I die, right? So since we're kind of shielded from our mortality very often, because what happens when people get sick or really, really old, what do we do with them? Put them in a home. We, can't, we don't want kids to see this. We want them to grow up thinking they're going to live forever so they don't think about the afterlife. Well, that's not helpful. <laughs> you had another one? That's a, so, so this is a good one. Well, we can, we'll talk more offline and I can give you more specifics. But here's like one of my favorite analogies is when I grew up, my mom, God bless her, she's a, she's a wonderful woman. She, um, she doesn't really care for steak that isn't dark, dark brown. Like that is, she burns everything. Well done. So whenever we had steak, I'd be like, oh, steak. And I thought the best way to enjoy steak was about what you put on it. Ketchup, Heinz 57 was a remarkable discovery in my life. We're like, it's better than ketchup. This is great. Steak is wonderful. And then I met Mandy and went to, went to their house and they made, I was in my 20s. They made filet mignon. And I, Mandy said, we're having steak tonight. Celebrate like you being part of the family. I'm like, oh. Stay great. I was like, this is the best thing I've ever had. I don't even need it. Because I even asked for Heinz 57 before the dinner. And dad was like, I don't think you're going to need it. So I hadn't actually had real steak before. And I rejected it. You see the analogy there? So in someone who, is, who has never actually heard the purity and, and wonderful excellence of the gospel... And they've rejected a, a god of law that's, that's imposed by the Roman Catholic traditions that adds, that adds works to salvation, that under-emphasizes that under, um, Jesus and overemphasizes the Pope and the works of myself and salvation, and then undermines the credibility of the Scriptures. Because we can't believe the Bible on its own, we have to, we have to lean on the interpretation of the, the church, 
but the church is full of guys who are like molesting children. The entire thing's a disaster. I can't trust anything. And you know what? The Muslims have a pretty reliable book too that they believe is true. So now we just can't know anything is true. And that's what the kids are taught at Nequa High School. And I know that to be the case that I've talked to some of these kids. I mean, even like you can talk to some of our high school youth and college youth to this day. That's the, the goal is to create a distrust of any spirituality by trying to hold up all of them as equally uncertain. And then, you, then you've accomplished what, what all you need to accomplish is you've removed the reliability of the, the scriptures and then send them to college where they can clean up all the rest of the mess, right? Uh, we're, at, we're way past time, but you had your hand up. I was up. just gonna say, the book that you recommended that I read, Tactics, Sharing Your Christian Convictions, that, is, that was so helpful. Yeah, I encourage you, like, if you, if, you are, if you find yourself in a conversation, or if you've got somebody in your life, which all of us do at this point, who, who doesn't think like you hope they would to appreciate the gospel, there's a book called Tactics, T-A-C-T-I-C-S, um, by Greg Kokel. And it's, you can get it audio books via Hoopla for free if you're in Naperville. You can buy the book. I've read it. I try to read it like once a year. And it's a, it basically is giving you not the answers to every question, but it gives you the, the strategic approach. Basically what I just gave you, the what do you believe and why do you believe that? And just expound, like digs deeper into those questions and gives some more applications for that. So then you're able to think through how would I talk to individuals? And it's, I mean, it's been helpful for me and even, it's a skill that's helpful in like board meetings. So anything comes up in like Board of Elders here, Board of Finance, and I used it back in the good old days when the climate was sometimes hostile, I would just say, so what, what do you mean by that? And how, well, how did you get to that conclusion? It's very infuriating for people sometimes to just ask questions because you don't, you're not, you know, I'm not saying anything. You can't get mad at me if I'm, not ask, if I'm not saying anything. Put a question mark at the end of everything you say and you say, well, oh, I, I didn't say that you were wrong. I just asked you how you could come to that conclusion. I just asked you how is having faith in evolution any different than having faith in the scriptures? They're both blind faith, are they not? Like, what do you... And, and I think the scriptures are less blind because this is, people actually saw Jesus rise from the dead. There's more reliability there. So really the, the argument is the, the evolutionist would have to make. But I haven't, I haven't, I'm just putting it as a question to you, right? Susan? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, he's, uh, he's trying to apply. I haven't, I haven't heard it or seen it yet. Um, how do you know Kogel? Hey. It was actually Dr. Francisco, one of our members here, told me about it back when I was at seminary. And um, he said he was reading the book On a Plane. It's like the classic story. You're on a plane, and some guy next to him was like a... He didn't know what, he didn't, I can't remember how the story goes, but he didn't know what the guy believed, but he's reading the book and he thought, I'm going to try this. So he just leans over and starts asking, the guy, hey, what do you believe about whatever? And then follows up and he just kept playing. It's a remarkable way to, to navigate conversation. You walk up to somebody, hey, I noticed you have a cross necklace. Is that a religious symbol? 
well, why do, you, why do you wear it if it's not a religious symbol? What's it about? I'm at Starbucks, uh, probably, it's probably been five years now. The guy in front of me had this big like skeleton on the back of his wrist. So he has had his hands down and, and I was behind him so I could see his massive skeleton tattoo. And I was like, it's a creepy tattoo, man. What's the story there? And uh, he kind of gave me the story. He's like, yeah. I think it was something like, I, I try, I put, the, I put on my body things that I'm scared of so, I, so I, I know that they don't have power over me or something. I'm like, that's interesting. Uh, I'm just curious, how, how does having their picture on your body make them not have power over you though? I'm just having a conversation. I mean, you do it not to be a jerk. You see, you have to kind of, you have to have some tact. <laughs> so you have to, but you're navigating the conversation toward, well, doesn't the, the devil doesn't really have power over you for more, for more reasons than you have a tattoo. But isn't it that you're like baptized into Jesus? And now he's asking me, what, what, what do you mean by that? And now we're, now, we're go- now we're off and running, see? It's all about questions. Very good. Um, sorry to, to keep you so long today, but good, excellent conversation. So we'll, we'll, um, we'll jump specifically into the creed. We'll, we'll quickly cover all three articles of the creed. If you have any creedal questions, next week. Um, there are lots of details that we could get into on various things. Um, just, there's too much to talk about and we're running out of time. So I'll hit, I'll hit the creed and then we'll, then we'll keep going through the liturgy and up on the Lord's Supper. Speaking of the Lord's Supper, I hope this week in, in Bible class, for those of you who have been coming, I've been saying I'm gonna talk about the Lord's Supper for like three weeks now. I've talked about everything else. There's nothing else I can talk about. I have to get to the Lord's Supper at this point in Luke. So we'll be talking about the Lord's Supper uh, this Sunday in Bible class, so different views in the Lord's Supper. And I just reread Luther's um, Against the Fanatics and um, just remarkable uh, logical approach to why, what, what, what are the different views in the Lord's Supper and, and, and how we can think about it in a helpful way in the scriptures. So all that hopefully we can come up and it should be a good discussion on, on Sunday. And I'm preaching on, on anxiety and joy. Joy and anxiety are what the epistle lesson has these two ideas parallel, so we'll talk about that. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, thank you all. Have a great rest of the weekend.